pray that you would speak that into our hearts this morning. I pray that you would speak through Michael, through your word, um, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes just to hear it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated again. We are uh, finishing up today. I think today is number 17. Um, story of Joseph, or is it really all about Jacob? As we have talked about before, um, what well, started out seemed like Joseph was the main character in this whole deal, but um, we have talked a whole lot about Jacob, and we'll continue that this morning as well. Uh, a couple of things for you to be aware of. Again, there is a sign-up sheet in the back. Uh, if you'd be willing to help out in our nursery, either first or second hour, we'd love for you to be able to do that. So there's a sign-up sheet in the back for you to do that. Uh, starting tomorrow, there are several of us that will be traveling to LJ for um, some ministry opportunities. Anything you want to say? Do we need to know anything about that? Or does everybody know that knows? Um, Tim will be coordinating with the youth. Okay. Any specific prayer requests that we need to be aware of? Um, I got an email from my boss about they've done a week at a, a similar situation. And because we've already been there once, the children are starting to open up um, more about their personal um, issues. And so that's just something to be praying about as, as they share their um, problems. But we do have the opportunity to be able to share God since it's not in the school. Right. Anything else? This morning, other announcements this morning. Michael, I got a prayer request. Okay. A good friend of mine uh, used to work with Scott White. Wrecked or turned his track hoe over, and uh, we flew him to Chattanooga. He broke a couple vertebrae, his sternum, facial bones, had a brain bleed and stuff. Recovering very, very well. But uh, just remember him. Scott White. White, W-I-K-E, -E, thank you. Bo has a bulletin. There's an outline in the bulletin if you would like one. He's got one to raise your hand. He'll be happy to get you one. Again, we're in Genesis chapter 50 this morning. That's where we will begin. This passage is really broken up into to four separate scenes, and we're going to look at them separately. We're going to read and talk and read and talk and read and talk and read and talk. Uh, the two on the outside, the two that frame the passage, are about death. One, the death of Jacob, and one, the death of Joseph. And the two in the middle are about life and how we live life. So we're going to look at the two on the outside first. We're going to talk about death first, and then see if there's something about the life that's lived that maybe can help us as we think about death. Again, it's been a, been a long journey through uh, Joseph's life. Again, I think this is week 17 with a few breaks here and there in between. And what we have seen is, is that family is a mess. And then we get to 50 and we read these rather remarkable words. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 
Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they had come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Misraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which before Mamre, which Abraham had brought, had bought along with the field for burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, when he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for the truth that is in it. I pray that you would bless our time, our hearing, and that you would give us the strength of your spirit to obey. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I just want to make some observations as we go through these. There's four kind of scenes, two of death, two of life. I just want to make some observations. And I want us to think individually and as a body, there's something I can learn from this. Is there something in here that can teach me about how I live and ultimately how I'm going to die? First of all, you know the story of Jacob. From the very beginning, he was a scoundrel. Throughout his life, he was a cheat. He doubted. He questioned. He was frustrated. He played favorites. He was willing to abandon part of his own family for another part that he really liked. And here at the end, there's this scene and, and the words that are chosen and... And the narrative that is, that is laid out for us is very specific that Jacob was redeemed and exalted in his death. Number one, when Abraham died, he got four verses that covered his death. When Isaac died, he got two. And here Jacob gets 14 in a time when writing on parchment, we, we want to save as much space as possible, Moses devotes a great deal of attention to his death. Not by accident. He wants to show that even in death, or despite his life, God has chosen to redeem and exalt Jacob. A lesson for all of us as we look at our past and go, Ugh. What in the world can, can God do with that? 
But it's not just the space that's allotted to him, not just those 14 verses that give great detail to his death. This foreign nation treated him like a king. The 70 days of mourning matched up with what we know of how long Egyptians mourned for their own kings when they died. Why in the world would they do that for Jacob? There was an entourage of, of royal officials and a military escort and his own family. There was this great procession that covered a great distance to see this man who most of his life lived as a scoundrel be given a, a royal burial, an honored burial, an exalted burial. And then finally, a final observation, his family accepted his wishes to be buried in Canaan. Even though the whole family is, is now firmly entrenched in Egypt, comfortable, thriving, bearing kids, grandkids, no real proof or existence other than the word of Jacob and what he says that Isaac said and what he said that Abraham said, that they would ever really return. And yet, they said, okay, we'll, we'll take you back. Somehow the family bought into the truth that Canaan really is their home. We're going to bury our ancestor in the home burial plot because that's where home is. There is a in my mind, a very clear picture that God redeems, that God can redeem and exalt broken humanity. And it's a reminder to us that one day God will exalt our brokenness. As we sang about, we will stand before Him. As John writes, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. As Paul writes, our justification, which became sanctification, will one day become glorification. Just a glimpse that if God can, can do that for Jacob, is, is there hope that He can do that for me? Yes, the Scriptures say. There's hope that He can do that for me. There's hope that He can do that for you, that He will do that for you, for those of us that call upon Him. His children. So, scene number one. Just some observations. God redeems and exalts His children even in death. Jump to the end. We're going to stick with the death theme for a moment. Jump all the way down to verse 22 for a minute. We'll come back and, and deal with the male two sections in a second. Moses writes, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt. He, lit, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin 
in Egypt. Some other observations. You remember, because we've, we've now covered most of Genesis. Back about three years ago, we looked at the life of Abraham. We saw in chapter 12 that God appeared to Abraham and promised him land. He promised him lots and lots of kids. And he promised a blessing to him and that through him he would bless the nations. And then Isaac shows up on the scene and in chapter 26, God does the same thing. He reiterates the promise, reiterates the covenant to Isaac. Just like I promised to Abraham, I'm promising to you, your kids, this land, blessings. And then Jacob shows up on the scene. Same thing, chapter 28. And maybe because Jacob was such a scoundrel, he had to do it again in 35. Jacob, the land, lots of kids, blessing. I promise. And if we remember, neither Abraham nor Isaac nor Jacob were great models the whole time of, of integrity and, and wonderful godly men. They all made mistakes. But then Joseph shows up and we, we really have a hard time finding fault. You know, I'd said back at the very beginning that, that he seemed as a young man to maybe be a little on the arrogant side. But a trip into a well and a trip to Egypt seemed to have cured him of that and and there really are no flaws. We just don't find any flaws in Joseph from the time he shows up to Egypt 93 years later. And God does not, as far as we know, as far as Scripture says, come to him and say, Joseph, land, lots of kids, and blessings. Silence. He's heard the stories. He knows God showed up to his great-grandfather. He knows God showed up to his grandfather. He knows God showed up to his father. And here's a man that's lived faithfully for 93 years. And there's no record in Scripture that God showed up to him and said, Joseph, I'm going to give you the land and you're going to have lots of kids and through you I'm going to bless everybody. I don't know about you, but at that point in time, I might begin to wonder and scratch my head and go, eh, maybe we'll just stay in Egypt. But he looks at his family when he's about to die, and he says the promises to Abraham and Isaac, and then for the first time in Scripture, Jacob. And that threefold name... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the rest of Scripture used about 30 or 40 times is this kind of metaphor for God's covenant with His people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God uses that term over and over again through the prophets and through Moses to speak to the people as a reminder of His covenant with them, of His promise to them, to give them the land to give them numerous descendants, to bless them and through them to bless other people. And Joseph, without a clear word from God, embraces that covenant. And then relays that to his family and says, take my bones back to Canaan. I wonder if he even remembers anything about that place at all. He left when he was 17. 
He went back briefly when his father died. His home is Egypt. His culture is Egypt. His family is Egypt. His friends are Egypt. And yet he says, I trust God. While this may be my home, my real home is in Canaan. And I want you to take me back. And he says and he promises, God is going to visit you. Numeric Center says, take care of you. Literally means to visit you. And what we find is that there's a promise of God visiting his people at the end of Genesis. And we turn the page to Exodus. And what do we read about? 400 years later, God visits his people. What's interesting is at the very end of the Old Testament, there's a promise that God's going to once again visit his people. And we turn the page. And what do we read in Matthew? That God visits His people and His Son. And at the end of the New Testament, there's another promise that God is once again going to visit His people. And we turn the page and here we are. See, you and I live in a time just like Joseph's grandkids. Somewhere in that 400-year period of waiting. Knowing the promises and not having realized them yet. You and I live in that time period maybe of Malachi or Zerubbabel's grandkids or great-grandkids. They know the promise and yet they're waiting. They're waiting. And during that wait, they see Rome come in and take over the promised land. And they wait. And they wait. See, we're in good company. There's been lots of faithful people over the years who've had to wait for that visitation of God. One more observation. Very last verse, it says they placed Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. Interesting choice of words. Really, it means a, a box. But it's the exact same word that the Israelites placed something else in and carried through the desert for 40 years. They called it an ark. It's the same word. It's a box. So really there wasn't just one ark traveling through the desert for 40 years. There were two. And you go back and read some Jewish writings and they say that we carried two boxes through the desert. One containing life and one containing death is the way they would put it. And then in Jewish fashion there'd be a question. How could a box of death be carried next to a box of life? And the answer was because the box of death reminded us of someone who carried out what was written in the box of life. But Joseph was their example of what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That Joseph was an example of someone who didn't lie, who didn't commit adultery, who didn't steal, who didn't bear false witness, who honored God above all else. And those two boxes, those two arks, the Ark of the Covenant and the coffin of Joseph's bones traveled through the desert for 40 years as a reminder that death and life kind of go hand in hand. And maybe it should sort of pique our interest and in, in point us to someone else who did a better job of, of modeling what life looked like in our Savior Jesus Christ. And we sort of place death and life together in with Him. We, 
we celebrate his death on the cross. We celebrate the life he gave us because of that. Despite all the obstacles that Joseph faced in really believing, God didn't appear to him. Egypt was his home. This is a clear picture of faithfulness in death. So the question is, how did he, how did he get there? Because oftentimes death is hard to face, and, and it's those times when, when doubts creep in, and we begin to wonder, what does faithfulness look like? And so we get two other Scenes in the middle of chapter 50. Beginning in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which he did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. See, after his death, the, the brothers are, are thinking, okay, what now? I don't know about you, but see, after what we've read, from what we've known from chapter 45, 17 years have gone by, and Joseph has been nothing but kind to them. Nothing but faithful, nothing but one who provides for all of their needs after the forgiveness that took place in chapter 45. And yet, apparently, for 17 years, there's been this nagging doubt in the back of their mind. Are we really forgiven? And I don't know if they doubted Joseph or they just doubted that they've experienced... Maybe they haven't forgiven them themselves. Forgiven themselves. And so when Dad is dead, they, they concoct this story. You know, it's it's... On his deathbed, Dad said, you've got to forgive us. Right? They, they pull out what they think is the right card to play. They lay it on the table. And Joseph weeps. He cannot comprehend how they failed to understand his words and his actions over the last 17 years. How do you not know that you're forgiven? Where would that even enter into your mind that I would now turn and do something different than what I've done. And since Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, I'm assuming there's probably a good chance that maybe you or someone you know is probably in that same boat. Just choosing not to forgive yourself. Despite the clear testimony of Scripture from beginning to end with people like Jacob, who God not only redeemed but used and countless other people throughout the Old and New Testament. I mean, think of Peter. His self-absorption and his, his lust for self-preservation had Jesus even call him satanic. Are you in that boat? Your doubts, your, your fears of unforgiveness? That, oh, I've done this, God surely can't forgive me or use me. And yet, Jesus said, Peter, you're Satan right now. And yet we see what wonderful things God did with him. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Forgiveness is available for those of us who turn and accept what God has done through His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Will we believe that? Will we embrace that? Or will we spend life, wasted life, worrying? 17 years that could have been spent in joy. There's this nagging something in the back of their minds going, I wonder if Joseph is going to get us when the time comes. It's a, it's a picture of what life looks like without forgiveness. Don't go there. Don't be the one who struggles and says, I wonder if God really can. If you doubt, spend some time reading through His Word in the New Testament. The riches and the number of times when God says there's forgiveness. Think about all through Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, Colossians 2. There's redemption, the forgiveness of sins available through faith in Christ. Will we embrace that? Or will we allow those, those doubts, those temptations from the enemy that says, God really is not going to forgive what you did. Just go back and read the Old Testament. Read what some of those folks did. Lying and cheating and adultery and sin and murder and hatred and selfishness and arrogance and greed and pride. And over and over again, God intervenes and redeems and uses those people. Do we believe? And then we get to the last scene. Verse 19. A picture of, of not life worrying, but a picture of, of life without any worry, without any care, with, without any distractions. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Why didn't he get them back? I mean, he, he had every right to. Right? They gave him up for dead. They were willing to kill him until they decided to make money off of him instead. Right? He had every right to. Three things that he says that give us insight into his character that allowed him not only to live righteously, but to die righteously. First, am I in God's place? So he looked at his brothers and says, wait, you've got me confused for someone else. You see, it's, it's not my place to dispense justice. That's God's place. God is the one that judges. God is the one who is just. I'm not God. Don't be worrying about what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not God. Second, he, he knew that God redeems evil. In other words, he knew that God was good. Maybe the most, most famous line in, in all of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but, what does it say? God meant it for good. You see, Regardless of, of what his brothers did, God saw, I mean, sorry, Joseph saw God intervene in that situation and turn things for good. 
And if Joseph then now backs up and says, you know what, it's time for me to intervene, what he's saying is, what God has done is not good enough. What God has done is not sufficient. And what Joseph says by that is, God is both sovereign, He can do it, and He's good, He does do it. He takes that cowardly and evil act and He he turned something good out of it. He, He took that poison and made it sweet. He's sovereign and He's good. So there's this justice that God administers perfectly and then there's this sovereignty and there's this goodness. But there's one more thing that that he does. He knew that God gave him a task in life. God is purposeful with us. God is purposeful with us. He's just, he's sovereign, he's good, and then he intervenes in our lives and he says, I've got something for you to do. And Joseph actually believed it. And he believed it so much that he said, you know what, I don't have time to deal with justice and judging you. God has given me a task to preserve life. And that's what I'm going to be busy about, is preserving life. That's what I'm going to do. I don't have time to worry about whether what you did was right or wrong or what my role is. God's given me a role. He's made it very clear. He took me from the dungeon to the palace. How could I miss that? And so as long as I breathe, I'm going to fulfill what God's given me to do. I'm going to preserve life. So don't don't worry. God is just. God is sovereign. God is good and He's purposeful. And Joseph was going to walk in that. It's a clear picture of someone trusting in God in life. And that's what I want our lives to be about in here. Individually and collectively, do we know our purpose? Do we know that God is just? Do we know that He's good? Do we know that He's sovereign? Back up, do we accept His forgiveness so that we can take a step forward and move on? See, if you're like me, look back at my past and I say, you know, that episode, I'd like a mulligan. Can we get a do-over? I look back at my life and I say, I really wish that had gone differently. See, the problem with that is when we, when we kind of sort of play God, if that had happened differently, then maybe today I would be. The problem with that is, number one, we don't know the future. We can't even begin to predict what's going to happen when we walk out those doors, much less how things would have gone if something else hadn't have happened. We so desperately want to change things, but how do you know that God hasn't taken that dark thread and woven it into something beautiful to make you who you are today for a purpose today? The other problem with that is we always look at the past, number one, with poor memories. Even the recent past, we twist things and we see things differently than what reality tells us. And every one of us comes at the past with a bias. We look, through, we look through life through our own lenses and as time goes by, we, we tweak events and we change them. And so when we look back and go, man, I wish that was different. What we're saying is ultimately, I don't really trust God that He's sovereign and that He's good. 
Now, I know because I know some of you fairly well, there's been some lousy things that have happened to you in the past. Nonetheless, God has used those to bring you to where you are today. And He has a purpose for you today. And ultimately, that purpose is to redeem your life and exalt you. Why? So that you're made something of? No. So that God is made something of. Because when He takes broken vessels like Jacob, and like Moses, and like David, and like Paul, and like Peter, and He does this miraculous thing called redemption, and He does this wonderful thing called giving a purpose, and then He uses us for His glory then He gets the glory because people look at us and go, what in the world? How did, how did that happen? Because I, I know what you were like. And if we're open and honest, like the Bible is open and honest. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. It paints things as ugly as they are. Let that be an encouragement to us. Don't, don't hide who you are. Don't try to whitewash your past. It is what it is. Let God use that for His glory. So that whether in our life or in our death, we bring God glory. As Paul says, thanks be to God who always, not some of the time, not every once in a while, not when things just seem to be going well, God always leads us in triumph. And that's good news. Let that be an encouragement to you today as you walk out those doors and face this world that regardless of my past, God desires to use me today for a purpose. And He's taken my past and woven it together with His Spirit and His grace and His mercy and His justice and has made me who I am today so that I have an opportunity to minister to people He brings across my path. You don't think He can use the baggage from your past to minister to someone today? Yes, He can. does that all the time. As we, as we close out this wonderful beginning of God's story of redemption, the ultimate story of redemption, we have seen in Abraham, we've seen in Isaac, we've seen in Jacob, we've seen in Joseph and his brothers that God intervenes in time and space to redeem messed up people for His glory. The story continues. In Exodus, there's a man named Moses. And there's all these people now that have been born. There's these multitude of descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they're a mess too. And God uses them for His glory. Down through the centuries, 2,000 years later, to a point in time when the descendant of Judah was born by the name of Jesus. And he did what nobody before him could do. What Adam failed to do, what Abraham failed to do, what Moses failed to do, what David failed to do. He followed God perfectly. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. So the question is, will we turn to him? Will we submit ourselves to Him? Will we allow His sovereignty and His mercy and His grace to lead and guide and direct our lives? And when He does that, will we give Him the glory? Let's pray together.
Father, you are amazing, really, that you could take the people in the story that we have read and do something miraculous with them. But that you didn't stop there and down through time. You came even to the people in this room and performed miracle after miracle after miracle in our lives. God, may we be May we be aware of that on a daily basis. Remind us through your Spirit what you've done for us. And God, through your Spirit, strengthen us that we would respond like Joseph in faith. Even if we are not where we think we should be. Even if our home doesn't look like we thought that it would. And we, we plead that you would, through your Spirit, help us to be the people that honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.